Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're actually going to be covering two chapters this morning. Uh, and before you freak out about the idea of covering two chapters throughout the Old Testament, um, chapter 9 is going to primarily be a flyover. Uh, the reason for that is because uh, the two main ideas that we find in Ecclesiastes have been mentioned several times through the course of our study of this book. And so in chapter 9, we're going to see Solomon suggest that we should enjoy our lives, even though that death is a reality that no one's going to escape. And we've seen that at least twice in Ecclesiastes so far. And we're also going to see in chapter 9 that wisdom has its limitations. Uh, and this has been a running theme throughout the book. And so we don't need to spend a ton of time on these sections because these are topics that we've uh, already covered. Now, in chapter 9, I do intend to uh, offer a counter viewpoint uh, on the portrayal of death that Solomon's been showing uh, to us. Usually, as that's being presented, I just acknowledge what Solomon has said and say, hey, he's pointing out that this is under the sun. Since this is getting close to the end of the book, I do want to take the time to acknowledge how we as believers, followers of Christ, should think about death. Right, Because he is looking at it from almost a completely naturalistic perspective in stating that it seems like that's all there is. After this life, you, know, you should enjoy it because after this life, there's nothing else uh, that's going to happen. And so there is more to our existence than what happens, as Solomon says, under the sun. Right? There is more to that, and because there's more to that, we are called to live as God's people in light of that reality. And so I'm going to address, uh, for a few minutes, we're going to talk about what, what, how we should live based on what uh, the New Testament talks about, about death and life after death. And so we will spend a little bit of time in that. Uh, but before we get into any of it, let's pray about our time in the Lord's Word this morning. Father, I'm grateful that you have uh, chosen to spoke, speak to us, that whenever we want to hear from you, all we have to do is open this amazing book that you've provided for us. And, and while we may not have every answer to every question that we may ever ask about you or about this life, we can find uh, significant truths that will get us through uh, the highs and the lows and the, the bright times in the darkness. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning our, our eyes are keen to see what you have to say to us, our ears are keen to listen in our hearts are leaning towards you to be obedient to all that you have for us today. Lord, it's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. So we're going to start out with Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Indeed, I took all this to heart and explained it all. The righteous, the wise, their works are in God's hands. People don't know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of them. Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. As it is for the good, so also it is for the sinner. As it is for the one who takes an oath, so also for the one who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. In addition, the hearts of people are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. But there is hope for whoever is joining with the living, since a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. There's no longer a reward for them because the memory of them is forgotten. 
Their love, their hate, and their envy have already disappeared, and there is no longer a portion for them in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with pleasure, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and never let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days. For that is your portion in life, and in your struggle under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength, because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. And so in these verses, we see that life is full of a mixture of experiences. Right? Some of it is going to be good, some of it is going to be bad, and there's never really a rhyme or reason to it. Right? We don't, we don't believe in karma. We don't believe in the fact that if we are good, then good things will happen to us. If we are bad, then bad things will happen to us. We see throughout Ecclesiastes that good happens to the wicked and, and bad happens to the righteous all the time. There's really no rhyme or reason for it, but no matter what kind of life you live, there is one fate that is coming for all of us, whether you are righteous or wicked, whether you are good or bad, whether you are clean or unclean. Uh, if you're one who brings a sacrifice before the Lord or someone who never brings sacrifices before the Lord, if you're one who makes an oath or if you're afraid to make an oath, in the end, it all goes down the same way. Eventually, life is over. Eventually, we will take our last breath under the sun and life is over. And Solomon points out through these verses that it's better to be alive than dead. Right? He says that with this really interesting statement. If you look back at verse 4, he says, but uh, there is hope for whoever is joined with the living since a live dog is better than a dead lion. And I found that really, really interesting um, why would he say that being a live dog is better than being a dead lion? Uh, well, the, the reason for that is because at this point in Israel's history, there was zero value in dogs. All right? So, I mean, now you, you know, may have this pet that is no longer a pet. It's a family member. You know, they eat at the table, maybe even out of your mouth or whatever kind of weird stuff you're into with your dog. Like that... At this point in Israel's history, there were no pet dogs. Like You did not bring one of these animals into your house. Uh, to be called a dog was an extremely derogatory term. And so uh, this is not something that would have been good to be considered. Uh, lions, on the other hand, they were both respected and feared. Right? If a lion crossed your path, you didn't go, huh, that's just a stupid lion. No, you paid close attention to what that lion was doing whenever you saw it. So if you referred to someone as a lion, it meant that you were powerful. It means that you're fierce. You're respected. But at the end of the day, Solomon here is saying that it's better to be a living dog, something that is basically like spat upon, kicked, moved out of the way in this culture. It's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. Right? So, someone may have been a lion in their day. Right? They may have been powerful. They may have been full of strength, vitality. They may have had a ton of wealth and prestige. Maybe when people walk into the room, like people are in awe of them or afraid of them. But at the end of the day, they're still going to die. Right? And I may be a dog. Right? I may ha be weak. I may have no influence, no vitality, no wealth at all. Maybe the best emotion that I might invoke when I walk into a room is pity. 
All right, so that's not a position that anyone wants to be in. But at the end of the day, if I am a living dog and you are a dead lion, I am still in Solomon's mind. In, in, I'm winning at this point because I've outlived you. No matter what you have at death, you become nothing is essentially what Solomon is saying here. Um, so one day, death is coming for us all. right? It's coming to me. It's coming to you. Um, and Solomon says, since it's inevitable, you should uh, enjoy all that God has given you before you die. This is something that we've talked about numerous times already throughout this book. Right? I've only mentioned briefly uh, throughout each time that I've spoken about this that everything that he's looking at is under the sun. I said before, that's a naturalistic understanding of this. Right? So he's not taking into account the possibility of an afterlife uh, after death, right? So he has intentionally taken a viewpoint that this life is all there is. But as believers in Christ, as Christians, we should strongly disagree with Solomon and anyone else that might hold to the position that this life is all that there is, right? We believe that one day there will be a resurrection of the dead into new bodies, right? After the resurrection, we believe that there is going to be judgment, that judgment is going to be based on what people did with the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Right? If they decide to go their own way, if they decide to stand before God on their own merit, there will be condemnation and there will be eternal separation from God. On the other hand, if they have decided to accept Jesus' gift of righteousness and stand on His merit instead of their own, then there will be eternal reward in the presence of God. So if you are a Christian here today, then you are to think differently about death than Solomon does. You're to think differently about death than how the rest of the world views death. Jesus says to his friend Mary in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, after her brother Lazarus died, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that question goes to you as well, church. Do you believe this? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 58, this is just a paraphrase. It says, O oh death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Right? Death is swallowed up in victory. In Christ's life, death, and resurrection, death no longer has sting for us. Right, so listen, if I die tomorrow, right, you can save your tears for me. You can cry for my family. You can cry for your own loss if you feel that. But you can save those tears for me because I'm dancing all the way to the bank to be in front of my God. So death no longer has sting or victory over my life if I were to pass away even considered young. Right, there is no victory for death in my life anymore. Paul again says in Philippians 1, 21 to 24, he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? Why? Why would he say that to live is Christ, to die is gain? Because if he continues to live, he gets to continue to work for Christ, but for the, if he gets... If he, die, if he gets to die, like that's how he's thinking about this. If I get to die, I get to be before the Lord. Paul again, 1 Thessalonians 4, says we don't grieve like those who have no hope. 
Right? Death is inevitable, even for those who believe, but we don't grieve those we have lost without hope. When a brother or sister in Christ dies, we grieve because we feel that loss. This is not how life is supposed to be. But we grieve with the promise. If we are also a brother and sister in Christ, then we know that we will see them again. We have that promise. When we do get to see them again, Revelation 21, 1-6 says it will be in the presence of Jesus. And there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more sin. Right? Everything is going to be remade. These broken bodies will never experience aging or pain ever again. Right? Our broken minds will never experience the temptation or the effects of sin ever again. So if we rightly think about the future promises that God has made to us as His people, then we are capable in that moment to honor the command of Christ to daily take up our cross and follow Him. Right? Solomon is telling us to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Jesus says, sacrifice. Jesus says to love with everything that you have. He says to forgive those who have wronged you because this life isn't all that there is, right? If we can live as those who have a promise that the next life will be greater than this life, then we will honor God in all that we do. After pointing out that life will eventually end, Solomon goes back to the second familiar refrain in this chapter where he points out the limitations of wisdom in verses 11 to 18. So follow along with me as I read that. Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong or, the bread, or bread to the wise or riches to be discerning or favor to the skillful. Rather, time and chance happen to all of them. For certainly no one knows his time, like fish caught in a cruel net or like birds caught in a trap. So people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on them. I have observed that this also is wisdom under the sun, and it is significant to me. There was a small city with few men in it. A great king came against it, surrounded it, and built large siege works against it. Now a poor wise man was found in the city, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. And as I said, and I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. The calm words of the wise are heeded more than the shouts of a ruler over fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner can destroy much good. So Solomon here reminds us yet again that life does not always play out in a way that makes sense. Right? It's sometimes confusing. The fastest person doesn't always win the race. The strongest warriors don't always win the battle. Right? Wise people don't always have food to eat. Right? The smartest people don't always have the most wealth. And the most skillful person doesn't always find the most favor in this world. He says there that time and chance will happen to all of them. Right? So if you're around long enough, if you continue to roll the dice often enough, you're eventually going to lose. Even if you're the best at doing whatever it is that you do, if you, keep, if you stay around long enough, you're going to lose at that thing. 
whatever it may be. And on the flip side of that, if you hang around long enough and if you roll the dice often enough, even one who typically loses will win on occasion. Right? That's just time and life happening to you. No one knows how this happens or when it's going to happen, but eventually something will change in your life, inevitably. For some, it's a change from good to bad. For others, it's a change from bad to good. And being wise helps keep those bad changes from occurring too often. So he does say that there is benefit in not being foolish. There is a benefit to being wise, but yet even with those benefits, life still happens. Right, Solomon speaks of wisdom in verses 13 to 18 as being a good thing, but it has limitation. Right, it's not ultimate. Right, for example, Solomon says that wisdom is better than strength and it's better than weapons of war. But just because you're wise doesn't mean that you're valued and just because you are wise doesn't mean that your wisdom will be heeded. And he uses an example of a city that's been attacked. He says a poor man... A poor wise man delivers the city through his wisdom. We're not told how that happens. We're just told that it does. So we can see that wisdom is good for overcoming significant obstacles, right? He's, he's helping this city with a few people in overcame overcome a siege by a king. And so like wisdom can help you overcome significant obstacles. But Solomon also says that the wisdom of the poor man is often despised. And why? Why would this wisdom be despised? It's because this poor man has no status. Right? Being wise doesn't necessarily give you power and prestige. And without those things, it's often easy to be overlooked. Right? And from here... Solomon begins this long list of Proverbs that are, that's found beginning in the end of chapter 9. He goes all the way through chapter 11 uh, with this list of Proverbs. And we're going to look at chapter 10 this morning. We'll save chapter 11 for next week. Uh, and my plan here, since this is an entire chapter's worth, is this is going to be rapid fire like we did in chapter 7. I don't know if you remember that or not. Uh, there were 14 verses of that, and we just hit a few of them with a little bit more emphasis than others. Um, so... These are going to be pretty quick. I will speak on a few of them more than others, though. So let's get to that. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1 says, Dead flies make a perfumer's oil ferment and stink, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So here, Solomon is telling us not to underestimate the impact of stupidity. Right? Even a few bad decisions can outweigh a life that's been lived mostly in wisdom and honor. Right? You, can, you can live a majority of your life honoring to the Lord, doing the best that you can, uh, thinking forward into the kingdom of God, and you can screw that up at the end of your life when you begin to take your eyes off of Christ. So do not underestimate the impact of stupidity. Number two, a wise person, or verse two, uh, verse two and three, a wise person's heart goes to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks along the road, his heart lacks sense, and he shows everyone he is a fool. Now, listen, I, I understand well that this is election season, uh, but when they're talking about the wise person going to the right and the fool going to the left, don't let your brain go into politics here, because this is not what he's saying. Okay, um, The right side of everything in Scripture is considered better because most people are right-handed. 
right? So the right side is the powerful side. The right side is where you would sit in a place of honor. And so like when we see Jesus going back to the Father, it says he sits down at his right hand. Okay, so that's what he's getting at here. The right, there's a fork in the road. The right path is the right path, right? And the left path is the wrong path. So in this proverb, Solomon's referring to the choices that we make in our lives. You've got uh, the correct path, which is the path of wisdom, the path of righteousness. And so that is going to the right. The left is where the fool goes choosing the wrong path and shows everyone that they are a fool by how they walk down that path. Right now, all, every proverb, I don't care wh where it is in here, it's rarely ever meant to be taken as an absolute statement. Right? Because, I mean, if we take some of these things as... Uh, in erring pro promises, you know, like said once one says, raise up a child in the way that it should go, and when they get older, they will not depart from it. Like that, we don't always see that happen that way. And so we can't take this as an absolute promise, right? Those who are wise don't always choose the correct path, right? We're sinful people uh, who make mistakes, but if we are actually wise, these walks down the wrong path won't be consistent in our lives right we're sinful we're going to make bad choices we're going to go down these paths but if we're wise we know that this is going to lead into our destruction and the destruction of those who care about us and so we will make our way back to the right path and along with that those who have taken the wrong path they're not meant to be automatically understood as fools right we all make mistakes it's in our nature it's what we do that doesn't necessarily mean that we are completely foolish so how can we be distinguished as wise or how is a fool to respond to being on the path that we are on well obviously if we're on the right path then we need to have the wisdom to see that and to continue following that path one way that we do that is by surrounding ourselves with people who are going the same direction as we are that's why the church is so important we cannot do this alone. Right? Can you be a Christian and not come to church? Yes. Can you be a smart Christian and not come to church? No. I said what I said. Right? We need each other. We need each other for support. We need each other to help correct when we're going the wrong way. Right? We need to be together. Right? And when the wise person inevitably makes a mistake whenever they find themselves on the wrong path with their wisdom hopefully they will see that as a problem and they will address the reality they're going to repent that's the difference between a fool and a wise person when we screw up we see that we've screwed up and we do something about it we repent of our wrongdoing Right? The wise person will then turn away from the path that they're on, even if it costs them time, even if it costs them reputation, even if it costs them money, whatever the cost may be. A wise person sees the value of being on the right path and will do whatever is necessary to get to that place. A fool, though, will often double down on a mistake by making more and more mistakes. Right? They refuse to acknowledge the fact that they made a mistake in the first place, so they continue down this wrong path and they make another bad decision to try to counteract the first decision and they get further down into the muck and mire of that choice, right? When really all they need to do is repent, see the folly of it and turn away, but they just continue on making one bad decision after another bad decision. 
Right? They're not willing to do what is necessary to get back on the right path. This is what makes them foolish. Verse 4 says, If the ruler's anger rises against you, don't leave your post, for calmness puts great offenses to rest. And so if you can stay the course after you've made your mistakes, after you have done what is foolish and wrong, if you stay the course and take responsibility for your actions, you can sometimes diffuse a bad situation. Right, I've said before, like we don't really have rulers that we address in the same way that Solomon's talking about here. We do have bosses, though, right? owners of a company or managers that we have to account for. Like if we've made a mistake, if we can stay in that place and not leave our post, then we might be able to correct the issue that has come up. We can help turn a bad situation back into a decent situation. That's what he's saying there. Verses 5 through 7 says, There is an evil I have seen under the sun, an error proceeding from the presence of the ruler. The fool is appointed to great heights, but the rich remain in lowly positions. I have seen slaves on horses, but princes walking on the ground like slaves. So here Solomon is pointing out that at times a ruler will promote a foolish person or foolish people who share their viewpoints, that people who share their positions of power rather than having people who might disagree with them even though they are wise and good for the position. They, they want to surround themselves with yes men. Right? Solomon thinks that this is evil. This idea that you would put someone in a position that doesn't belong in that position. He says, this is evil. It's certainly not uh, what is best for the country. But because people in power don't want to be pressed, they will often put the wrong people in places of power. Uh, verses 8 and 9. The one who digs a pit may fall into it, and the one who breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. The one who carries or quarries stones may be hurt by them. The one who splits logs may be endangered by them. So here we have another warning that we never know what might happen. Right? We're going about our jobs. We're doing what we do. And you know, while we're working, we might end up getting hurt in the process of doing that. And I mean, it just is what it is. Right? There's no rhyme or reason to it necessarily. Right? Verse 10, if the axe is dull and one does not sharpen its edge, then one must exert more strength. However, the advantage of wisdom is that it brings success. And so here he's saying, don't rush into things without thinking through the best and most efficient way to accomplish a task. Right? A little bit of preparation can go a long way towards saving time at the end of a project. Right? Abraham Lincoln once said, if you give me six hours to chop down a tree, I will spend the first four hours sharpening the axe. Right? Or you can just go hacking away at that thing for six hours with a dull axe. Right? A wise person knows that forethought and wisdom will bring more success than brute force almost every single time. Verse 11, if the snake bites before it's charmed, then there is no advantage for the charmer. So this is a warning to anybody who thinks that they might be able to schmooze their way into various situations. If the person you're attempting to charm uh, can take you out before you charm them, then that you're at no advantage. All right, so it's just a warning. If you are a schmoozer, smooze quickly, I guess. Uh, verses 12 to 15, the words from the mouth of a wise person are gracious, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words from his mouth is folly, but the end of his speaking is evil madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. 
No one knows what will happen, and who can tell anyone what will happen after him? The struggles of fools weary them, for they don't know how to go to the city. Uh, so he's saying here, the speech of the wise is loving. The speech of the wise, it's kind, it's life-giving. Even when it hurts, it brings life because it's good for those who hear it. So even if someone is condemning you for something that you have done wrong, if they're doing that in a loving way to bring you back to the right path, it may hurt to hear that. It may sting, but it's good for those who are hearing it. But, but he's saying here that the words of a fool will eventually devour him. Right? The fool cannot understand that what he's saying is digging a hole and it's getting deeper and deeper, and so the fool can't stop talking. Right? It just keeps digging a deeper and deeper pit. And what's, what's going to happen is when we see this, it brings chaos into the orbit of that fool. Right? No one knows what's going to happen. It's completely unpredictable. It's self-destructive, and there's no way to know what kind of damage he's going to leave in his wake. Just keeps going, keeps spewing foolishness out of his mouth. And, you know, things are crumbling around him. Can't stop, won't stop. And it keeps getting uh, worse and worse. And so there are real-life struggles for the fool as well. They lack knowledge. And so things like going into the city, Solomon says, is difficult for them. They don't know where to go and they don't know what to do when they get there. And so, again, it's better to be wise than foolish. In the last five verses... We're going to take as a set as they're sandwiched in between Proverbs on governments. So we're going to uh, interpret all of these as though they're speaking to rulers. It says, Woe to you, land, when your king is a youth and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, land, when your, son, or your king is a son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the roof caves in and because of negligent hands, the house leaks. A feast is prepared for laughter, and wine makes life happy, and money is the answer for everything. Do not curse the king, even in your thoughts, and do not curse a rich person, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the sky may carry the message, and a winged creature may report the matter. So a land who has a ruler who is inexperienced, who is also foolish, that land is going to suffer major problems. Right in verse 16, Solomon points out that the king is young, and because of that, the princes are more interested in partying and playing than in doing their jobs, and the king allows that to happen. Right? So this makes the people lazy, uh, and because of that, their houses begin to fall down. Right? So everything in this life, everything under the sun, Solomon has pointed out, is in a constant state of decay. Right? We cannot just take our hands off the wheel and expect everything to continue going in a straight line. If we are not fighting against the effects of sin in this life, life falls apart. Like we cannot rest when we are doing things in this life. It's just not a good idea. As you rest, things begin to fall apart. Right? So if you're lazy, things will fall down around you. Right in verse 19, though, we see that no one cares that everything's falling down because they're still partying. They're enjoying themselves. They're having a good time. Right? They don't care about what's going on because for the moment, they have money to take care of these problems. Eventually, though, that money will dry up. They won't be able to do that anymore. Right? Life cannot be a nonstop party all the time. Right? He, he says here, like, there is a time and a place for those parties. 
Right In verse 17, he says, Blessed are you, land, when your king is a son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength. Right, So you've done the work, you're tired, you're ready for a good time, so you have the feast, you have the people over, you enjoy yourselves, but you're doing that to rebuild strength and not to get drunk. Right? It's okay to feast in that moment. Right? It's okay. As long as you're not being lazy, as long as you're not being negligent, it's okay to enjoy yourselves from time to time. But life cannot be a nonstop party. And the last bit of advice that Solomon offers here is not to curse the king, even if they're young, even if they're inexperienced, even if they're lazy, because at some point, what you're saying will make its way back to the king. And so you need to be wise in how you handle your perception of these rulers. Right? If you run that mouth too much, eventually it will come around and it will bite you in the butt. Right? That's the problem with the fool. Constantly spewing stuff out of their mouth, constantly causing turmoil in their life. Eventually, this is going to get back to the person that you're talking about. So, so we, I mean, we've covered a lot of stuff this morning. And again, when we have that, it's hard to come up with applications. Right? What part of this spoke to you specifically? I mean, there's no way to know. All right, so I wanted to apply this, though. Twisted question. What comes to your mind when we talk about death? Right? Solomon has been very clear that death will come for us all. So are you an eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of person? Right, let's just leave it out, all out there on the table because we can't take any of it with us, so let's live it up. Is that how you roll? Or are you one who thinks well through the promises of God to his people and lives life according to those promises? Because if we have the mindset that God is going to fulfill all the promises that he has given to us throughout his scriptures and what the next life is going to look like, right, where we are constantly being in God's presence, we are constantly dealing with the reward of what our life merited as we lived it then we're going to live a sacrificial life right we're going to see all that god has given us and we're going to hold it open-handed and say who needs it right it's okay for me to enjoy some of it solomon has said that over and over and over again but ultimately right we are called to live a sacrificial life so we live with it open-handed and when we see need we help meet that need we 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 live a life of service Right? We're not constantly just trying to build up our bank account, build up our 401k, build up you know, whatever we have for the nest egg so that we make sure that we are taken care of. We, we work to help people. Right? Of the 59 one another's that we find in the New Testament for the church to, to do for the church, right? that's all acts of service. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to love. Right, we're called to forgive. We're called to forgive even those who are considered our enemies. Now, we're not going to do that if this life is all that there is. Why would I waste my time forgiving an enemy if this is all we had to, to look forward to? But God says, no, no, no. While you were still an enemy, Christ died for you. And you are to forgive people in the same way that I have forgiven you. To do that, we have to live with the future promises in mind. Right? Showing people grace. Showing people mercy. 
Right? We can only live that way if we understand the future promises that have been given to us and what Christ has done for us so that those future promises can be offered. We were given grace. You do not deserve salvation. You do not deserve it. You do not deserve the righteousness of Christ. I do not deserve it. But we were given grace by God through Christ so that we get something that we never deserved. And by God's grace also, we, do not, we are shown mercy in that we don't get what we do deserve. We deserve condemnation. We deserve hell. But if we think about the promises of God and we live according to those promises, then we will offer grace. We will offer mercy. We will offer, we will offer love when it makes no sense to offer it. So how are you doing? What, how are you living your life here today? What parts of this world are you clinging to as though you don't trust the promises of God? What needs to change in your life to show that you trust those promises. Right? If this is all we have to look forward to in this life, right? if, if it's just under the things under the sun, as Solomon keeps pointing out, then we really are to be pitied. Right? Paul talks about that when he talks about the resurrection. If, if Jesus is still in the grave, then we're to be pitied above all people. But he's not. He rose from the dead. He offers us that same resurrection in the future where we will spend an eternity being in His presence and getting the, the treasures, the rewards that He has offered to us. And why would we sacrifice anything in this life for that? Why would we sacrifice 60, 70, 80 years of ease and pleasure for an eternity in these promises that God has given us? So that's something to think about. How are you living your life? Which promises are you trusting in? Which ones are you acting as though you don't? Think about that as we pray together and close out today's service. Father, I'm grateful for the promises that you've offered us. I'm grateful that we can know for certain that there is a resurrection, that we can know for certain that if we have accepted Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross, that we will stand in judgment, but we will be deemed not guilty and righteous based on what Jesus has done for us. I'm grateful that we can live a life that represents Christ well, a life of sacrifice, a life of service, a life of forgiveness and love, because all your promises to us are true. So Lord, help us to be mindful of these things. Help us to see areas in our life where we're not living according to those promises and help us to have a deep burning desire in our heart to be wise and to honor you in all that we do. I ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.